Hey, Slava Connection listeners, as the crisis in Ukraine continues on, so does our ongoing conversation about the Russo-Ukrainian war. Uh, we have a returning guest today for you, Alex Kocherov. He's an expert on the regions in question, and on a personal level, he has connections in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. If you listen to that speech by Vladimir Putin, it was not so much about recognition of those entities in, in, in Donbass, but it was more about non-recognition of Ukraine as a nation. Kokshirov added a lot of different viewpoints that we certainly benefited listening to. So hopefully it will be just as informative for you guys. So take a listen. Two, one. It's not a typical text You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So whenever you're there. Yeah, let's get started. Uh, Alex Kocherov, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. We're excited to uh, host you again. Uh, thank you for having me. In light of the ongoing crisis and war that we've been seeing unfold in Ukraine, we were really excited to have you because you do have some personal connections to the region. Well, my connections is my heritage and my personal experience, my background. I was born in Minsk, in Belarus, but my mother is Ukrainian. And my father is Russian. And I have lived in all three, including during the times of the Soviet Union. I lived in Donetsk for four years. And uh, the village where my grandparents are buried is near Ilovaisk in eastern Ukraine. So it is in the Russian-occupied territories uh, in the east of the country. So all these names are not just, you know, names in newspapers or on historical maps, uh, but rather uh, personal connections because I spent a, a lot of time there. I lived in Belarus, I lived in Ukraine, I lived in Russia. So what's going on in Ukraine right now with Russia invading and conducting a barbaric campaign uh, aimed at uh, killing civilians and destroying civilian infrastructure and assets, to me is just terrible. It's atrocious and to me, it's heartbreaking. It, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see Ukrainian cities being shelled and being bombed. I've been to many of those cities which are in the news, including Mariupol, Kharkiv, Kyiv, Kherson, and many others, including recently. I was in Kyiv last summer. I was in Lviv last autumn. I had plans to come back to Ukraine and be based in Kyiv for a couple of months this spring, but it looks like it's not going to be happening with uh, everything that's going on. So, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. So in that way, you probably have a lot of people over there that hopefully are still speaking to you and keeping you informed. What, what have you been hearing? Yes, I've, I've been in touch with my friends, you know, since the start of this Russian military buildup at the end of last year, which began in November and December. And initially it looked like a repeat of what happened last spring. So it looks more of intimidation tactic rather than a preparation for a war. But towards mid-February, I get increasingly concerned that this is way more serious. So I started talking to my friends in Kiev and asking them to be prepared to leave on a very short notice. So I urged them to pack emergency backpack or emergency suitcase, which would be ready with all key items such as documents, uh, key items of clothing appropriate for, for winter, any medicines people might be taking, and some cash. 
Some of my friends in Kiev were actually, you know, not keen to listen to my advice. I had to argue with them, but I managed to actually, you know, change the minds of at least several of them. So on the morning of the 24th, when air raid sirens went on early in the morning, they actually left before all the traffic jams appeared because they were ready. They only had to wake up, brush their teeth, uh, grab their bags and leave. So they did it at like 5.30 in the morning. Many of them are now in Western Ukraine, different locations in Zakarpati region, in Lviv, in uh, Ternopil region, so Western Ukraine. Fairly not impacted by the events in the East and in Kiev. Some have actually crossed into Poland and it's it's difficult. It's not fully grim, but it's difficult because obviously people are concerned, you know, in many of those those places, people have to spend significant amounts of time in bomb shelters. But overall, a lot of people are cautiously optimistic that this war will not go well for Putin's Russia and that Ukraine will uh, persevere and will be rebuilt. And in my view, there are reasons to believe that this could be the case, unless, of course, Russia escalates and turns cities of Kharkiv and Kiev into another Grozny or Aleppo, uh, which sadly is not impossible. I just have to ask, how do, how do you feel we ended up at this place? Uh, how did we get to this place where your family, friends are, are now under Russian bombardment? I think we got to this place because of delusional views of people, of a very small number of people who make decisions. And I'm talking about people in the Kremlin. The views have moved to extreme. It's borderline chauvinist ideology. If you listen to that speech uh, from the 21st of February by Vladimir Putin, in which he announced Russia recognizing independence of Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, the so-called People's Republics, it was not so much about recognition of those entities in in, in Donbass, but it was more about non-recognition of Ukraine as a nation. Uh, of a separate history, a separate culture, a separate people. And sadly, this is based on very misinformed views of those people who make these decisions and who probably make these decisions on very wrongful assumptions. They probably expected that there will be very little resistance from Ukraine, from Ukrainian armed forces or from civilians. They probably expected that civilians would welcome Russian forces, as it happened largely in Crimea in 2014. And they probably expected that the West would not react significantly. But they were wrong on all three counts. And we're seeing now that a few days ago, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense released captured documents showing that the war was only supposed to last two weeks based on the Kremlin's calculations. And, and so I have to ask, how could Mr. Putin have so greatly miscalculated Ukrainian resistance, expecting a two-week conflict. Sadly, this is often what happens in authoritarian systems, where the people down the chain of command who provide information, including classified information and intelligence assessments, they are interested not so much about reporting the truth, but rather reporting in line with those views which they expect from their superiors. In an authoritarian system, it's all about pleasing your superior because your superior has the the right to dismiss you pretty much any moment of time. So you don't tell them things they don't want to hear. 
And if you say only things which they want to hear, which please them, then it means that you know there is a, a high probability of you being factually incorrect. And I think this is what happens. This is most probably what happened. Obviously, having seen the internal documents, and it will be perhaps interesting for historians in the future, 50 or 80 or 100 years from now, to look into those documents and, and actually have a better understanding of what's going on, what was going on in the, in the Kremlin in February 2022, when they actually took these decisions. But this is, this is my personal belief that this is what most probably has happened. Sort of in a similar vein, right? We, there was this expectation that it would end after a certain time. And now there's a big question of when this will end, how this will end. And one of the words that's been being tossed around is an off-ramp, an off-ramp for Putin. This avenue that he can take to end this war, because at this point he seems to, as we've noticed, be full steam ahead and ready to throw anything he can at Ukraine with currently some limits to it. But right, we don't know what's coming up here. So obviously this is a very open-ended question, but how do you see this sort of unfolding? Obviously there can be multiple scenarios here, but I think based on what we know about Putin, he's not a man who likes to admit mistakes or errors he's made. So he will probably try to rectify the situation by escalating it. He's done this in the past, and I think this is what what he will probably attempt now. Sadly, this will probably mean more civilian casualties, more destruction, more Ukrainian towns and cities reduced to rubble. But I honestly don't see a good way out for him from this, because if he withdraws forces to to the positions before 24th of February, then he would be viewed as a, a wounded Sharahan who is no longer capable of making moves and it would significantly weaken his position both internationally and domestically. But I seriously doubt that he can achieve his political objectives in Ukraine with military goals because the more he, he bombs Ukraine uh, and shells Ukrainian cities, including Russian-speaking cities such as Kharkiv or Mariupol, which are mostly Russian-speaking, it's actually going to make more Ukrainians anti-Kremlin and anti-Putin and anti-Russia. And even in a theoretical situation, if Russia were able to occupy Ukraine, for which they would need to commit many more forces than they currently have near the borders of Ukraine or within Ukraine, they would face a, a large-scale insurgency, which would be fed by you know, this massive destruction of Ukraine by Russian military, which would be just destroying and, you know, uh, destroying Russia from within. So there's, for him, in my view, there's really no good way out of this situation unless he admits that mistakes have been made. I don't hold my breath here, sadly. talked about destroying Russia from within. And I think we're seeing in, in, in Western media here and kind of this Western attitude of it's kind of a triumphant attitude as it relates to the sanctions regime that's been put in place. You know, we're seeing the rubles now at a 124 or something to one USD as of this morning. There's a growing shortage of consumer goods, medicine, and, and the list goes on and on. But this kind of triumphant attitude of, of the West as it relates again to the sanctions regime and, and kind of getting your sense of whether you feel this is an effective way, kind of these broad sweeping sanctions, you know, a, 
sanctioning of the Russian central bank. Are they effective or, or do you worry about unintended consequences here in, in going after the Russian people more broadly? Well, obviously it's sad that uh, the sanctions have an impact, negative impacts on standards of living of ordinary people in Russia. But their main objective is to significantly damage the regime in the Kremlin. And it looks like it's already happening because we've seen a number of pro-Kremlin oligarchs publicly speaking about their views on what's going on and uh, urging the Kremlin to stop the war and to return to dialogue with the West and to attempt to ease the sanctions by offering concessions on military fronts. So they are having an impact because they are seriously damaging interests of very wealthy people in Russia who have influence over decision-making, including in the Kremlin. It's not direct influence, of course, but there is there are avenues through which they can exercise influence. In terms of, you know, the negative impact, yes, sadly, that, that's the case. But, you know, there's no other way. The West cannot engage with Russia militarily for obvious reasons, including uh, outside of Russia, including in Ukraine because everyone is concerned about an escalatory pathway which can lead us to an uncharted territory of nuclear warfare and nobody wants that for obvious reasons. So the calculation is that economic warfare, however damaging, is better than kinetic warfare because, you know, you compare the level of damage and yes, it is damaging, everyone accepts it, but it's less damaging than kinetic warfare which can lead to nuclear strikes, mutual nuclear strikes. Uh, which nobody wants it. I, I may have a sense of your answer to this this follow up question now, but you know a lot of people are are, are jostling for for NATO and in intervention in, in sense of a no fly zone over Ukraine, and that being a next a next step towards supporting Ukraine and, and possibly a kinetic step, like you were alluding to. But you would kind of advise against that, it seems, um, because of the nature of escalation. Uh, you know, I don't take advisor role. I'm just saying that you know pathways that can lead to a further escalation. And I think at the moment there is a consensus in Western capitals that robust economic measures such as sanctions and uh, seizures of some assets of Kremlin-friendly oligarchs or, or other individuals, and we've seen some of those happening, some of the luxury yachts of uh, very wealthy Russian businessmen have been seized. I've seen a report that in Italy, the authorities have seized two villas on Lake Como owned by a key Kremlin propaganda figure, Vladimir Solovyov. And it does have an impact, you know, doing these things. So it's not exhaustive. And yes, I think increasing the number of civilian casualties in Ukraine can potentially change the calculations in Western capitals about what would be the right thing to do. But I think at the moment, the preferred option is to cause significant economic damage to Russia so that it would force Russia to modify its actions in Ukraine. Again, not necessarily withdrawal, but at least you know, freezing the lines of contact and uh, stopping shelling of cities and reducing the level of uh, collateral death and injury and destruction. I wanted to pivot a little bit here and rip my next question from 
headlines for the last few days in that we've been seeing a, a major collapse and shutting down of many and most, I would even say, uh, independent news sources in Russia. And a lot of this, especially for those that have personal connections in Russia, there's been a split in opinion among ordinary Russians where you do have some people that are aware of what's happening. You do have some people that are going out and protesting. A lot of others were, were having conversations with Russians that either don't seem to be aware of what's happening or denying that it's happening are buying into the propaganda that unfortunately they've been consuming. Have you been encountering this and, and how do you foresee this playing out? Yes, I have been encountering this, including in my own family in Russia and in Belarus, where they most mostly watch television channels um, controlled by the Kremlin, which provide a very specific angle of this, which is completely Orwellian, because according to the Russian media, Russian armed forces are not waging a war in Ukraine, but rather conducting a special operation in Donbass only. So only in the east of Ukraine and not in the rest of the country. They're not shelling or bombing uh, Ukrainian cities. It's, it's the Ukrainian armed forces who are doing this. Russians haven't shelled any civilians, haven't killed any civilians. And they are doing a great thing by removing the uh, evil Ukrainian Nazis who are in control of Ukraine. That's the narratives which are being fed to people in Russia and in Belarus and in other post-Soviet states where Russian television is still available. And it's, it's mind-boggling that educated people with university degrees can actually believe in this. But this is in line with the Russian official position, which is which is just sadly based on lies. And Ministry of Foreign Affairs should be, in my personal personal view, renamed into Ministry of Lies because they don't say anything true. There's nothing true in anything they say. And it's sad because it, it creates rifts. I have friends in Moscow and in St. Petersburg who are in complete shock and horror about what's going on. They are connected to the Western coverage of this, so they know, or Ukrainian coverage, they use VPNs, uh, they use TOR in order to circumvent all those restrictions which are in place within Russia to access information. So they have seen devastating results of bombings of Ukrainian cities. They are in complete shock. They they don't know what to do. They don't know what's gonna what's what's gonna happen next because they understand that the direction of travel from here is is not great. It's it's only further domestic isolation, further domestic repression, and further isolation from the rest of the world and turning into a rogue state with no ability to travel abroad or very restricted ability to travel abroad, not just because it will be more difficult to get visas or to fly, say, to Europe or the United States, but also because they will be much poorer because the economy will be hit due to the impact of sanctions. We are seeing that the Russian currency is losing value, but again, I'm, I'm not involved in economic modeling of this, but my personal hunch is that this is sadly only the beginning, and we're going to see more of devaluation of the, of the Russian currency and more economic shock to, to people. And imports are likely to become even more expensive for people living in Russia, and their standards of living effectively will will fall further. And they haven't been doing you know, that great in the past 10 years. Largely, there was a stagnation after 2014. Last good year in Russia was probably 20, 
2012-2013, before it all started and the currency started losing value, the political confrontation began and incomes have stagnated. Okay, not for everyone, of course, but for significant chunks of population. Do you see those state narratives coming out of, you know, Channel One and and whatnot having such an effect that they would ultimately prevent any true large-scale protests, maybe similar to what we saw, you know, in the winter protests or in that period of 2011 to 2013? Are they that effective at at kind of quelling any, you know, real opposition to the Kremlin outside of obviously, you know, what we see in Moscow and St. Petersburg, where, you know, traditionally have kind of access to those outside sources that you were talking about? I think it will depend on economic situation. We already see a lot of Western firms minimizing their commercial footprints and exiting Russia, divesting from Russia. Based on, on the numbers and of, of various firms which have announced that they're closing shop in Russia, this is probably the most unprecedented business exodus in the part of the past at least 20 or 30 years from a country. I haven't seen anything on this scale, that's for sure. And I think it will lead to significant economic difficulties with a lot of jobs being lost. Because these firms, when, when they close, close their shops, you know, IKEA has closed its malls. Okay, they say temporarily, but, you know, and God knows whether they're going to come back or not. Lots of people are going to lose jobs, and this will have an impact on the, on the labor markets, of course. And I think that might have an impact on the views of people. Yes, the the continued control of the state media and the narratives which are broadcast through these um, state media will tell people that it's it's all because of the evil West, which is trying to suffocate Russia. But I think eventually, you know, at least some people will, will start waking up. It has happened during Perestroika. Yes, the direction of travel in terms of uh, freedom of speech was completely the opposite. But, you know, it, 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 it can happen, especially when people actually see that their standards of living are slipping and they, don't, they no longer have access to goods or services which they are accustomed to, and perhaps they would reconsider. And, and yes, maybe their anger will be directed at West, but they will be also directing their anger at the government, which is not not doing enough to help them out. Do you push back on on your family, friends, relatives when they present kind of these Orwellian ideas that are, you know, truly born out of state propaganda? And I guess, how do you manage to do so when it when it's so disconnected from the events we're seeing play out now in Ukraine? Well, I must say that with friends, I had a very big fallout with a number of friends back in 2014 over events in Ukraine. I was called, uh, you know, Ukrainian Nazi sympathizer of evil NATO and things like that. And I said, okay, if you believe this, we better, you know, stop communicating. So, and I haven't been in contact with those people. It's more difficult with family, but I have had a heated conversation with one of my sisters uh, earlier this week because she was, she was presenting me these pro-Kremlin narratives. And she told me that I'm completely brainwashed by NATO and that I should wake up that, um, I'm guessing wrong information that I must be watching CNN and things like that. It's like, no, I'm not watching CNN. I'm reading Ukrainian news and, and I'm watching Ukrainian TV, uh, which is, you know, from the ground in Ukraine. And I can see what's happening. Russia is shelling Russian-speaking cities. 
you know, places like Kharkiv and Mariupol, where people would, you know, otherwise generally have more favorable views towards Russia rather than towards the West. But Russia is doing things which turn these people completely anti-Russian. And I'm not going to blame these people because, of course, you're not going to like Putin, who is uh, giving orders to, to, to shell your residential areas and kills people you know and injures people you know. So, yes, it's difficult. It's more difficult with the family, of course. But, yeah, with friends, if people want to be negative, they can be negative, but I don't want to deal with it. And, yes, it means that some friendships have ended, including long friendships. You know, one of my friends with whom I had a massive fallout, we met back in 1995. So we had nearly, you know, 20 years of friendship. I am, uh, I or was, I was the godfather to her daughter. We were really close for many years. But then, you know, she completely bought the narrative about evil Ukrainians and great, great Putin, who saved Crimea and saved Donetsk and Luhansk from evil Ukrainian Nazis. It's, it's painful to consider that, you know, kind of zooming out that this is a problem that's just been recurring, this devaluation of truth. And we saw it in the U.S. if we'd kind of turn the mirror back on ourselves. And yeah. it's, it's, it's concerning. And it's this sort of level of conspiracy level thinking where you can't pull them out. Right. We always say they're too far gone. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I've shared about a conversation I had with, with my sister on, on my Facebook and a lot of my friends who are from Russia but live somewhere else, or they live in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and they're liberal and they they are not pro-Putin. They were basically saying the same that you know I can't talk to my to my friends uh, to my family you know back home, say in the Urals or Siberia or more provincial Russia because you know they're completely brainwashed. They 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 buy this propaganda hundred percent, and this is sad because it impacts. A lot of families, it impacts a lot of relationships. I spoke to to my Ukrainian friends today who live in Kiev. They're currently in Western Ukraine. Uh, they managed to get out um, uh, and they're, they're in safety. But they have family in Russia, ethnic Ukrainian origin, but they, have, they, but they live in Russia. And they do not believe anything their Ukrainian relatives who live in Ukraine say, but they believe uh, what the Russian television says. I think there was a, a news report on BBC a couple of days ago about a girl from Kharkiv whose mother, again, Ukrainian origin mother, lives in Moscow and doesn't believe her own daughter who tells her about uh, bombings and shellings of Kharkiv by Russian forces. And she says, it, it cannot be Russians. Russians are good. Russians are there to save you. And we see this, you know, across countries and across multiple families, circles of friends, and yes, some relationships break down, and this is very sad. And especially it's very sad that, you know, we live in the age when information is so easily accessible, and the expectation back in the early 1990s was, you know, once internet becomes accessible to anyone, we all will be on the same wavelength. We're going to be sharing very similar worldviews because we'll have access to very similar types of information. But it's not the case. We, we Even on the internet, we live in our eco chambers and uh, there can be a lot of hostility to each other uh, within those eco chambers. The more you think about it, when you can't even keep together people to people connections, like what hope is there of, of just general 
higher level diplomacy as well. Like I'm sort of thinking of how essentially everything is is off the table now. Like any diplomatic negotiations is off the table, and you have some of the more stringent Russia hawks saying that's it. We're not doing this anymore. You have people walking out of of negotiation meetings, but at, at the same time, you have to come to the table and speak at some point. That that's sort of the reality of the situation, and so that it makes me also sort of concerned and and, and pondering, like when when w- will we come back to that point, if if ever? I don't know. I think it will be very difficult to reconcile, and I know that for many Ukrainians, they won't be able to reconcile with their Russian relatives or friends unless those accept parts of the blame in not seeing what's happened. Of course, you know, they're not blaming these people, say their friends or families, indirectly bombing them or shelling them, but being ignorant about what's going on and completely buying the propaganda narratives from the Kremlin. That they see as something that is wrong. And before people and families and and circles of friends, former friends can move on, there should be an acceptance that, you know, a wrong action has been has took place. Is there any resentment towards the West? You know, we see a lot of kind of patting on the back now. Where you're talking about seizing the estates at uh, Lake Como and, and the seizing of yachts and other properties, and it finally seems that the UK is taking actions towards the funds of oligarchs who have been stashed in in London and the UK for for so long. Is there any resentment now, even after 2014, after Crimea, that it took this to, to finally get a, you know, a sweeping Western reaction? Oh, yes, uh, there is plenty of resentment. And my own sister told me that uh, it's actually NATO which started the war in Ukraine because it, it wants to conquer historic Russian lands, end of quote. So a lot of people on that side of the border in Russia, in Belarus, they believe that it's the evil West which which started all this, and they are just after resources of Russia and Ukraine. And Ukraine must be saved from the evil West, which is about to to create, you know, to, to stage LGBT parades in Kiev and, and things like that. <laughs> it's like, seriously, you live on $200 per month and your concern is some um, imaginary LGBT marches. Why Why wouldn't he be concerned about your own standard of living? Is there any way to break down this narrative? As someone that's traveled to Russia like myself and Lero has family? It's very, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. One of my good friends in London, he had very heated conversations with his parents uh, who live in Siberia. He tried to kind of break these barriers with actually showing factual footage, videos, uh, photos, which he collected from social media accounts very eminent, you know, Bellingcat, verified, Christo Grozev type of things showing, okay, look, you know, this is what the Russian army is doing. They they have shelled this on that day. That many people have been killed. And his own parents tell him that this is all staged. These are not real. And that um, he should listen to other sources, basically. So even even when presented with actual photographic or video evidence, people refuse to believe it. I, I, I honestly don't know what can help if people, you know, refuse to believe their own eyes. to pivot a little bit and you mentioned before that we do have Ukrainians now voicing concerns voicing 
no, I don't want to say complaints, but voicing criticisms of now Western institutions and NATO for not doing enough. Especially, I believe yesterday, NATO rejected the request for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. So I wanted to get your take. Are NATO forces, are Western forces doing enough? There is still more room of, of what else we can sanction, of what else we can do. Well, it's hard to say. And obviously, you know, I can understand the logic of decisions made by the West because they don't want to be in a situation where a NATO aircraft encounters a Russian military aircraft over Ukraine. And then what? Uh, Ukrainians are angry because their civilians die. Their cities are being destroyed to rubble. Uh, emotions are high. I can totally understand everyone is exhausted. I would, I would imagine people in Ukrainian government you know, sleep maximum two or three hours each uh, per night and are probably physically exhausted by all of this. Uh, there are probably assassination attempts planned against key government officials. Uh, we've seen reports that allegedly there have been three assassination attempts against President Zelensky, but I'm sure there have been more against other officials such as ministers and, and, and key uh, officials within the within the Ukrainian government and parliaments. So yes, nerve, you know, the the nerves are very, very raw right now. And I can understand frustration of Ukraine, which which would prefer to have their skies sheltered by a no-fly zone. But I also understand the logic behind the decisions made within NATO of not offering a fly zone in this situation. Because yes, there are there have been cases where Russian aircraft have been shot down by uh, a NATO member state, you know, 2015 over C- Syria-Turkey border, but it was a somewhat different situation. And it was, it was not as close to Russia and to Russian borders. And also, I think there is a realization in the West that Putin went for a very escalatory pathway this year, which was way more escalatory than a lot of people have expected. So his decision-making process can be skewed towards further escalation and not reconciliation or not diplomacy or not trying to find some common ground. So I, I, I understand both parties' points. And sadly, yes, Ukraine is going to be angry about the West not doing enough. And the West would say, sorry, we can't, we can't, do, we can't do what you're asking. But yeah. I mean, you know, from the personal and humanitarian point of view, it's really sad because having a no-fly zone would obviously help save a lot of civilian lives and would assist Ukrainian armed forces on the ground to be much more effective and much better protected. Uh, Based on what we see on the ground, Ukrainians are doing a, a relatively decent job. But Russia does have air superiority and it does create create problems for Ukraine. So if Ukraine cannot have a no-fly zone, perhaps the West should consider, you know, fast-tracking the delivery of those promised uh, military jets, Soviet-era military jets, from uh, the uh, Central Eastern European, now NATO members, but formerly Warsaw Pact members, which can be used by Ukrainian armed forces because they, they have been trained to operate those types of aircraft. And that would help Ukrainian Air Force to withstand the Russian Air Force superiority, uh, which is currently in place. 
You know, one of the most powerful images, thanks to you, that I was able to see was the footage of Yelena Osipova, the siege of Leningrad survivor, which is truly incredible to think about her lived experience being led away uh, in St. Petersburg. And I mean, just while we have you here, I, you know, I'm grateful that you tweeted that out and that I was able to see that image because that to me showed what in my kind of maybe idealist mind is, is the strength of Russia, someone who went through the siege of Leningrad and was still willing to come out and, and be detained by police. I mean, you know, there are, there, are, there are a lot of people, obviously, especially in places like Moscow, St. Petersburg, who do not support what Putin is doing and who are horrified. You know, I spoke to my very liberal friends in Moscow and they, they basically said, we're in state of shock. We just, you know, sit under blankets read the news, and we are in complete shock and horror. And it's difficult to, you know, to, to, to contemplate what we can do. And yes, they've been, they've been protesting. They went out to protest. They've been detained, spent nights in detention, got a record. So if they, if they go and get detained again, uh, they will become repeat offenders, meaning that it will be 15 days and not just one and not 24 hours. And then, you know, down the line, they can go to, to prison for two years before repeat offense of unauthorized protest. They, they realize that, you know, as long as they, they're not going to be hundreds of thousands on the streets of Moscow, St. Petersburg, the police would, would be going after them one by one and uh, would be just rounding them and fining them, sending them to 24 hours in uh, detention, 15 days in detention, things like that. And people have obligations, they have jobs, they have children, they have pets. So people, people try to be careful about these things. But it does force a lot of liberal Russians out of the country. I mean, even my own personal circle of friends, there are very few people who were in my core circle of Moscow friends 10, 15 years ago who are still living in Moscow. I'd say 80% have moved out to other places, anywhere from New York to uh, Cape Town, Singapore, uh, a lot of people in different countries in Europe. Some are in Tbilisi. But yeah, people understand that it is increasingly difficult to reconcile their own views and their view of the world with what's happening within Russia. And they don't think that the country would change to the better in sort of a short, medium term. So they make a logical step, especially those who have children and who want their children to grow up in freer societies where critical thinking is encouraged and not ostracized, where having an opinion is actually a good thing. In many places in Russia or in the former Soviet Union, there is this phrase, do you think you are this smart? And this is actually seen as a criticism. It's a criticism. Saying that you think you are smart means that this is something bad. And it goes back to trying to not think critically, to not have an opinion, but rather follow what other people tell you. And in my view, this is sad. And I guess this is one of the reasons why I chose to not stay in Russia though I had opportunities, uh, professional opportunities, to stay in Russia in the early 2000s. But I opted to not do that, despite the fact that I probably would have done better in, in my career and in terms of perhaps even incomes in Moscow than in London. But I just couldn't see myself in 
an unfree society where having an opinion is a bad thing, where you must comply with with the wider narratives which are given to you or fed to you. And my personal nature just rebels against this. In trying to find some sliver of optimism in all of this, if it's even possible, were you yourself having this personal relationship with the Ukrainian people, family, friends, colleagues? Have you in any way been surprised by the resilience, the resilience of the Zelensky government, the resilience of the people? I haven't been surprised by the resilience of Ukrainian people and of Ukrainian armed forces. And that's why I was skeptical, actually, you know, until until February that Russia would invade because, you know, to me, it's a, it, it looked like a disastrous and very wrong, very badly informed decision. Like, why would you start a war which it will be nearly impossible to win, realistically? I expected that there would be significant resistance. I expected that a lot of civilians would be not welcoming, majority of civilians would not be welcoming Russian forces, but rather opposing Russian forces. And we are seeing that in some of the Russian-occupied cities, such as Kherson and Berdyansk and Melitopol, there have been protests by local civilians flying Ukrainian flags and telling Russians, go away from here, you know, we, we don't want you here. Uh, we speak Russian here, but you, we want you out. So I was not surprised about this element. I am positively surprised about resilience of Zelensky. I had a lot of skepticism about Zelensky in the past, and I was not a fan of many of his domestic policies, but I think he demonstrated outstanding leadership, bravery and dignity in dealing with this situation. And I can only say kudos to him. He is doing a great job. He is he clearly graduated to a statesman. And I think this feeling is shared amongst many Ukrainians, um, I mean, citizens of Ukraine. I think, you know, if Ukraine wins this war, there is very good chance that he will have an outstanding result in the next election, in the first round. So, yeah, I, you know, I was surprised by Zelensky. Zelensky was a real surprise. I had a lot of reservations about him in the past. A lot of the influence from certain oligarchic groups uh, within his inner circle. There was tendency to agree to some of the Russian narratives on Ukraine and on Donbas, with Zelensky coming from a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine. Having spent much of his career as a Russian-speaking comedian, not only in Ukraine, but in other countries of the Soviet Union. He performed in Belarus, he performed in Kazakhstan, he performed in Moscow in the past, before he became a politician. So I had a lot of reservations, but I am very pleasantly surprised that he turned out to be uh, an outstanding leader who has demonstrated a lot of dignity, a lot of bravery, and a lot of resilience. Uh, so I can only say, amazing job, amazing job. And uh, I hope that uh, he continues to deliver. I love this phrase, graduated to a statesman. <laughs> he, I, I think he did. He definitely did. He definitely graduated. He was a newcomer to politics in 2019, but three years on, he's got his PhD in the past 10 days, basically.
Yeah, similarly well done, right, to Ukrainian civic resistance. I think my one of my favorite sort of stories, alleged stories this week, is that Russian troops attempted to set up this sort of image of them providing humanitarian aid, and they wanted to record it. And Ukrainians yeah. came out and basically told them to go to hell. Yeah. And that was just... Yeah, I think, you know, the civic society in Ukraine has demonstrated a lot of resilience as well. And the key reason here is Ukraine has been independent for 30 years. And it has been moving towards more democracy in the past, definitely eight years, since 2014. So the Ukrainian society doesn't wish to go back to a sort of Soviet way of living and functioning, which which Putin seems to be trying to, to restore with obviously not socialism, but state capitalism. Ukrainians are not interested in that. Ukrainians are interested in, in, in more down-to-earth things, you know, they, they want to live well. They don't care whether Ukraine is a great power or not, but they want to live well. They want their children to live well. They want their children to have a good life, a good future. They want to travel the world. They don't want to, you know, have this imaginary picture of, you know, we live in a great power where, you know, your salaries are what, $400 per month? What's great about it? I'm sorry. There's nothing great about it. In my picture of the world, countries like Switzerland and Norway are great powers because pretty much every every citizen there lives a very good life. Whether you are a low-skilled worker or you are retired uh, or you are highly skilled, but everyone lives a good and decent life with a lot of opportunities for themselves. There is nothing great about Russia where you have pensioners living on hundred or two hundred dollars and now no less per month. I'm sorry, this is not great. Absolutely not great. Yes, it looks big on a map. So what? Uh, how about you know improving standard of living rather than imaginary greatness? But when I when I say these things to a lot of people in Russia, I am brainwashed by the West and thinking about material things rather than about spiritual things of greatness. Well, I, I certainly want to thank you for coming on and stimulating our critical thinking skills. This has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. And thank you for sharing some of your personal narratives. This is affecting a lot of us in, in many different ways. So again, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, again, I think a lot of people with connections to that part of the world with friends and family are often in very similar situations where uh, families and friends are divided in terms of their views on what's what's actually going on and who is on the side of of the good, who is on the side of the bad. There will be a day at some point when it has to be undone, and the the, the further Russia goes down this trajectory, the harder the work to undo all this damage will be. After World War II, people in Germany, civilians in Germany had to watch videos and films about Nazi atrocities during World War II. Sadly, I'm convinced that in the future, people of Russia would have to watch videos of what Putin's regime has done in Aleppo, what they've done in Grozny, what they've done in Ukraine, and what they've done in parts of Russia again. And truth will be told and it will be a very difficult journey and it will be painful for a lot of people to watch and accept that they were blind for such a long time. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. For content-
Conversations Changing the World, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 